turn to chapter 1 of Romans, and we're going to pick up where I left off last time. I remember years ago, um, growing up as a child, and you've heard me tell stories about my childhood, but uh, and talk about the fact that I came from a family of 10 children, which was quite stressful in and of itself. And uh, what you probably don't know is my mom was just this little pint of a thing, four foot 11. And, um, but I remember times when she would get a little bit frustrated with the kids. And I remember these words, I give up. I've had it. You push me about as far as I can go, now you're going to be sorry. You remember those kinds of words? Like when I was 10 or 11 years old, or you, possibly, when you spent the entire day breaking just about every rule your parents ever gave you, and you pushed and pushed and pushed your parents' buttons until finally you hit the big one labeled overload, and you knew it was curtains, right? Well, quite possibly, the memory is quite vivid like when it happened yesterday, because the last time you heard the sound of those words, they were actually bore an uncanny resemblance to your own voice with your kids when your child defied you. Defiance. The mere sound of the word paints a vivid picture of resistance to our minds. But in the end, we all know that defiance brings dire consequences, don't we? In one of his books, Dr. James Dobson recounts a classic story of uh, willful defiance and resulting consequences. It's a story of a 10-year-old named Robert who was a patient of one of Dobson's colleagues, Dr. William Sloniker. Dr. Sloniker said his pediatric staff dreaded the days when Robert would be scheduled for an office visit. He literally attacked the clinic, grabbing instruments and files and telephones and his passive mother would do little more than just shake her head in bewilderment, had no control over the child. And during one physical examination, Dr. Sloniker observed severe cavities in Robert's teeth and knew the boy must be referred to a local dentist. But who would be given that wonderful honor? <laughs> a referral like Robert could mean the end of a professional relationship, right? And so Dr. Sloniker eventually decided to send him to an older dentist who reportedly understood children really, really well and had a good way with them. And the confrontation that followed now stands as one of the classic moments in the history of human conflict. Robert arrived at the dentist's office and he prepared for battle. Get into the chair, young man, said the doctor. No chance, replied the boy. Well, son, I, I asked you to climb onto the chair and that's what I intend for you to do, said the dentist. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and then replied, if you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. The dentist calmly said, son, take them off. <laughs> the boy forthwith removed his shirt, undershirt, shoes, socks, and then looked up in defiance again. All right, son, said the dentist, now get into the chair. You didn't hear me sputtered Robert. I said, if you make me get on that chair, I will take off all my clothes. Son, take them off, <laughs> replied the man. Robert proceeded to remove his pants and shorts and finally standing totally naked before the dentist and his assistant. Now, son, get into the chair, said the doctor. 
Robert did as he was told and sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. And when the cavities were drilled and filled, he was instructed to step down from the chair. He said, give me my clothes now, said the boy. I'm sorry, replied the dentist. Tell your mother that we're going to keep your clothes tonight. She can pick them up in the morning. <laughs> now, can you comprehend the shock Robert's mother received when the door to the waiting room opened? And there stood her pink son, naked as the day he was born. The room was filled with patients, but Robert and his mom walked past them into the hall. They went down the public elevator and into the parking lot, ignoring snickers of the onlookers. The next day, Robert's mother returned to retrieve the clothes and asked to have a word with the dentist. However, she didn't come to protest. These were her sentiments. She said, you don't know how much I appreciate what happened here yesterday. You see, Robert has been blackmailing me about his clothes for years. Whenever we're in a public place, such as a grocery store, he makes unreasonable demands of me. And if I don't immediately buy him what he wants, he threatens to take off all his clothes. You are the first person who has called his bluff, doctor. And the impact on Robert has been incredible. Now, when that doctor called the bluff of young Robert's willful defiance, the result was dramatic, right? But somewhat humorous. But friends, when God calls the bluff of a willfully and continually defiant world, the result is not so humorous. It's dreadful. And it's devastating, and it's no laughing matter. So now, if you're in your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 32, the subject matter that I'm about to preach today and to deal with is not a fun text. It's not funny. As Donald Gray Barnhouse once wrote, quote, there are some sermons that a true minister of the gospel loves to preach, and there are other sermons which it hurts to preach. I wish that I did not have to include this present chapter. That's how I feel today. But you know, when you preach expositionally through a book, you're eventually going to hit a chapter and a set of verses that you don't want to preach. And you can't sidestep them, can you? These nine verses of the book of Romans are some of the most disturbing verses in the entire New Testament, in fact, in the whole Bible. We have in this text a graphic description of God abandoning sinful and unrepentant mankind to their own devices. The context here, if you, if you remember, recall, is really beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed. What is the wrath of God and how is it revealed? How's Paul talking about this? Well, just to give you a little background, just really quickly, God's wrath is all through the Bible. You know that if you've read the Bible at all, but it comes in kind of different types. And I just want to outline three types of God's wrath to you that's put forth in the Bible. Number one is God's final wrath, the final judgment. 
The great white throne judgment. That's the wrath at the end of time when God judges everybody in the world. And the fire and the brimstone, and you, that's what you think of when you hear about God's wrath, isn't it? Then there's a second type of wrath in the Bible. We call it provisional wrath. This is the wrath of God that is poured out through the legal system. In other words, sin is punished in our legal system. God has given the government right to do that. So that's another type of wrath that we see in the scripture. That's God's wrath. And then there's a third type that we're going to look at today. This we could call God's permissible wrath, as someone once called it. This is the kind of wrath that describes the fact that God, when he gets to a point of where people finally sin to the point of just defiance, that he gives you over to your own desires. That's a different kind of wrath, isn't it? And that's the kind of wrath that we're talking about here in this context. In other words, he gives you what you want. You say, really? He gives us what we want? Yeah, he gives you what you want, and that's not a happy thing. It's not really what you want. If you look at verse 24, we see the beginning of this context in which Paul three times affirms that God is at a place where he just takes his hand off and gives people over to their own devices. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, here comes number two, God gave them over. He gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here's number three, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, do you see why I don't want to preach this text today? Incredibly serious verses. The text is reminiscent of Isaiah's prayerful lament over his own sinful nation in Isaiah 63. We'll begin at verse 19. It says... And, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. 
Isaiah 63, 19. And then in 64, verses 6 and 7, we read these words. That there is none who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. You see the parallel. This is what happened to the nation of Israel, that God gave them into the power of their iniquities. Here's the theological question for you. Does God ever give up? Does God ever give up? The scripture promises that God will never abandon his children, right? But consistently we find that those who are not his children, those who continue to reject his offer of salvation in Christ, those who continue to shake their fist at him and willfully defy him, those who abandon him will be abandoned by him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2, when the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, he told King Asa and all of Judah, he said, the Lord is with you when you are with him, and if you seek him, he will let you find him, but if you forsake him... He will forsake you. When people persistently turn their backs on God, a nation turns their back on God, eventually he will turn their back on them and leave them to themselves. In Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 6, we also read something very similar. Jeremiah 15 in verse 6. You who have forsaken me, Jeremiah says, or the Lord says, declares the Lord, you keep going backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am tired of relenting. And when God lifts his hands of protection, all hell breaks loose, literally. That's the whole point of this text, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 32. It's a warning and a plea for people to recognize their need of the gospel, hence the title of the sermon, Recognizing Our Need for Good News. You got to recognize you need the good news before it becomes good news to you, amen? The good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you can say the same thing, amen? You know what is most disturbing about this passage? It's happening right now all around us. And many of you will go your way today and not realize the serious implications of what it says. That God is giving people over to their own sin. The world without Christ is plummeting on a downward slide that results in a complete emotional, physical, intellectual, and spiritual decadence. Would anyone argue that fact? Three times Paul emphasizes God's abandonment, as I said, and the result is not a pretty sight. The reason for God's abandonment, even though people know about God, they reject him out of hand. They rationalize him away and finally remake him into their own image. You see that? Someone once said something to the effect of God made us and created us in his own image, 
and we have returned the favor. We've created him in our image. Okay? And when man abandons God, God abandons man. Spiritual defiance ultimately results in societal decadence. Reading this passage is like turning a mirror right on society. The progression is incredibly graphic. Paul says that continued spiritual defiance leads first to the impurity of physical degradation. Look at verses 24 and 25 yet again. Therefore, God gave them over to, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul employed some pretty intense words here. When he says that God gave them over, he means just that. In other words, he took his hands off. It's a serious word in the original language. It's the same word that was used of Judas's betrayal of Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 4, where Judas handed Jesus over to the authorities and betrayed him. It was even used of Jesus when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit on our behalf. That giving over, that handing over, it's not that God gives up in utter despair, like when my mom used to say, I give up. No, God's not giving up that way. Like he has no control, or if, as if he throws in the towel because sin is winning the fight. No, no, no. Rather, this text is referring to the fact that God is actively giving people over. It's an act of his wrath, his permissible wrath. It's a consequence of people who turn away from the Lord. The text indicates that because people didn't think that God was worth acknowledging, he handed them over to their own desires. In other words, if this is what you want, I'm going to let you have it for a while. See how you like that. In other words, he gave them what they wanted. Second Chronicles chapter 12, as a matter of fact, Second Chronicles chapter 12. I was just reading this this week and it just so happened uh, in my devotionals that this popped right up. And knowing I was preaching on this text, it, it gave some pretty good insight into this. But in Second Chronicles chapter 12, we have the situation of Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son who became king. It's when the northern and southern kingdom split. And Rehoboam at first seemed like he was going to follow the Lord in 2 Chronicles 11. But then he forsakes the Lord and there's resulting judgment. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 12, 2 Chronicles. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, note that, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. It always happens when you're in a good place, right? Things get easy, things get good, things get powerful. You think you're all that. Next thing you know, you're forsaking the law of the Lord. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year because they had been unfaithful to the Lord that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. 
with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, the Lubim, the Suchim, and the Ethiopians. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. And then Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, watch this now, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. I'm giving you over. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them. See, God wasn't totally giving up. But I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak, but they will become his slaves. Now watch this. So that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the country. See that? There are times when God allows people to go further and further into sin in order that they might hit rock bottom to see their need of him. I'll show you what it's like if you want to go into the world, if you want to live like the rest of the world does. If you think it's more beneficial to you to serve the world than to serve me, all right, have at it. I'm going to show you what that's like. You're going to see what that's like. But you see, God's desire is to see men saved, not condemned, amen? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yet men, even though given many chances to turn away from sin, are obsessed with sin. They have an insatiable desire for sin. Hosea also described how far it had permeated the nation of Israel. In Hosea chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of prostitution is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. Interesting choice of words. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their wrongdoing. Judah also has stumbled with them, and they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. And again, Jeremiah specifically addressed this very issue in Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 2, and declared the end result in Jeremiah 2, verse 19, he says, Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. I, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. In Psalm 81, verse 12, the psalmist says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own desires. Those are so serious words, very serious, heavy words. Now, when men and women exalt themselves over the God who made them, they inevitably seek to indulge whatever pleasures they want. Their chief end, right, is to serve themselves. The problem is that the lusts of the human heart are what? Evil. 
continually evil. That's what Jesus said, right? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc. Now to indulge those things is to make yourselves at odds with God. God, through the mouth of Jeremiah, declared that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? But to freely indulge what's in our hearts is to book a one-way passage to destruction. Verse 10 continues, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Paul says here in this text that as men continue to reject God and refuse to serve him, God will hand them over to serve themselves in impurity. Notice that, in impurity. The word impurity there refers generally to uncleanness and in almost every context where it is found in Paul's writings indicates sexual deviance and immorality. Almost in every case that he uses it. So this is what God is giving people over to. Paul's implication here is that one of the first indications that God gives people over is a rise in sexual deviant activity which results in impurity, which results in a dishonoring of our bodies. Look at what it says right there in verse 24. What a paradox. When man seeks to honor himself by indulging his lusts, illicit desires, his body is dishonored, it says, and that has happened, hasn't it? And it is happening still. It happened in the Old Testament, happened in New Testament times, and it's happening now. And the word to dishonor means to treat with indignity, to abuse and debase, to render valueless. And here again, we see this incredible paradox in our own society. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a society so bent on paying attention to and caring for the body than our own society? Has there ever been that? We've got pampering techniques and diets and clothing and luxuries and spas and this and that and all of these things that we do to pamper, to take care of, to make sure our body is healthy, right? We're focused on it. We're obsessed with it in our society. And yet... At the same time, has there ever been a society so abusive and so destructive to the body? Those two things happening simultaneously. We have exalted the body and we have degraded the body simultaneously. One author wrote these words, said the more human life is exalted for its own sake, the more it is debased. Unquote. It's ironic that the same society that exalts humanity dishonors it pervasively. We proclaim humanity's greatness and yet abuse each other in countless ways. You can list the examples yourself. I don't have to. But that is the reality of a people that does not serve God. When people reject God, 
they reject the source of their dignity. And therefore, their bodies are dishonored among them, Paul says. The Phillips translation puts verse 24 this way, they gave up God and therefore God gave them up to be the playthings of their own foul desires in dishonoring their own bodies. We are confused and insane people, aren't we? I mean, we really are, if you think about it. Solomon described it well in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. He said, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. It's an interesting verse. When people become that crazy, that insane, God gives them over, it says. The reason is repeated again, for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Originally, that's what it says, the lie. The lie, the word exchanged here literally means transmuted. The implication of that word is to transform into a higher element or form. So the reason that God gave them over was because they transmuted God's truth for the ultimate lie of all time. You know what that is? That man is indeed God. That man makes all the rules. That man is worthy of worship and worth serving. You see the transmutation there? Instead of being the creature, now we have exalted ourselves over the creator. Isn't this the shameful and the prideful lies perpetrated by the serpent causing the fall of mankind way back in Genesis? It's the same thing, isn't it? And we buy this. We buy this hook and line and sinker. We're proud and we celebrate it, don't we? We do. We serve and worship ourselves if not in sexual indulgence, in other ways. We pamper ourselves, baby ourselves, feed and clothe ourselves with the best of everything. But when it comes to serving God, no interest. People are more interested in and better at serving themselves than serving God. Paul says that God abandons humankind when it serves the creature instead of the creator. Are we guilty of that? That's only a question that each of us has to answer individually. Hopefully, you're not guilty of that. Yet the world at large without Christ is. Yet Paul couldn't even finish his statement. I love this about Paul. He couldn't finish his statement in verse 25 without giving glory and honor to the true God. Look at 25, verse 25 again. He says all of these things for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And that's what we should be doing, right? That's the Christian's attitude. There is only one God worth serving. There's only one who makes the rules. There's only one who deserves our worship. There is only one creator who is blessed forever, amen. Amen? Amen. amen. Continued spiritual defiance, Paul says, not only leads to the impurity of physical degradation, but worse yet, it leads to the perversity of sexual deviation. And this is where it gets dicey. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman 
and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So the next step down the ladder, as God gives men over to themselves, is a major leap, okay? It goes beyond the lust of the flesh and the passions of the heart into this whole new realm now, that which is, what's it say? Unnatural. That's a very important thing. Very important word. Now, at the risk of being labeled homophobic, I need to address some very important issues of truth about homosexuality, because that's what Paul is dealing with here. Actually, it is God who addresses them and quite specifically. So, make believe I'm not even here. There are no interpretive problems in this text, my friends. None. The issue is simply addressed by God through the, the Apostle Paul in black and white. And the Holy Spirit does not allow us any speculation. So, again, disclaimer, I present this to you as it is clearly presented here in God's Word. Please, do not attribute these statements to human anger or personal prejudice or hatefulness or a lack of compassion to any fellow human being created in the image of God which has been horribly marred by the universality of sin caused by the fall. You following me? My friends, I stand before you admitting that we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat in need of redemption. Amen? According to his mercy, through the shed blood of Christ, by the power of his resurrection and a washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's where we all are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But this is what Paul says. This is what God's word says. Number one, homosexuality is sin. Sexual orientation may be politically correct, but it's biblically unfounded. The Bible gives no option about sexual orientation or gender identification. By the way, gender identification has got me totally confused. Have you figured out the countless different gender identities being put forth? We've got male, female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pangender, gender queer, two-spirit, third gender, and all. None of these, all of these can be combined for different things. So it's no longer LGBTQ. Now we have LGBTQQIP2SAA. I'm not making this up. Which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, queer, intersex, pansexual, two-spirit, androgynous, and asexual. You might be asking, what is two-spirit? Two-spirit is an umbrella term used to describe native and indigenous people whose gender identity encompasses both male and female energies. 
Within the native community, it is recognized as a third gender since it falls outside of the two-gender binary. Now, are you confused yet? There shouldn't be any confusion according to this text. It's very clear, okay? There's no options here. Look at the way Paul describes it here as a result of God giving people over. And by the way, I just want to go on record as saying this. There are only a handful of texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament that deal with the sin of homosexuality. And I want to tell you this directly. And I want to tell you this, that in every single context in which it's mentioned, there is never a context in the Scripture in which it is presented as positive. Never. Never presented in a positive light. Not a single one. So Paul describes how God gives over. He says it's a degrading passion in verse 26. It's interesting that Paul doesn't use the normal terms for women and men in these verses. He simply uses the generic terms for male and female of the species, obviously stripping all dignity whatsoever from those who degenerate into such practices. The Bible assumes male and female in a relationship. In every case, all the way back from the beginning when they're created to the first marriage on the planet. So it's a degrading passion, Paul says. Secondly, it's unnatural, he says. According to this text, homosexuality is not just a perversion of the natural sexual relations, but an inversion of it. That's important to understand. When people forsake God, the creator of all things, they inevitably forsake the created order as well. And we see, we see it in this whole gender identity thing. I, ten years ago, you would have said I was crazy if I mentioned to you that people are being born and not given a gender at the hospital now because the parents want their child to choose it for themselves. Go back to the whole insanity thing in Ecclesiastes 9.3. says here, the bottom line regarding homosexuality is just what it says. It's an abandonment of the natural function in exchange for that which is unnatural. Verse 27 says that it's considered an indecent act. And it is an error which reaps consequences, it says, in receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their sin. And in verse 32, we read these very, very heavy, serious words that it is a sin worthy of death. As all sin is, by the way, according to Romans 6, 16, and 23. Actually, in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death in Leviticus 18. Now, you might say, well, you know, are there differences in sins? Well, yes, there are. But every single sin that we commit puts us at odds with God, amen? However, there's differences in sin. In other words, when I go outside here, if you've got a ticket coming here this morning for speeding, and I hope none of you did, that's a whole different story than if you murdered somebody on the way here, isn't it? 
There are different levels of sinfulness, right? You all know it. We live our lives like that every single day. Someone once said this week, I, I, I heard this in a, in a message this week, all sins are equal in their spiritual consequence, but not all sins are equal in their moral equivalence. Get that? Some sins constitute a moral divide, and that's what we're getting at here. In the New Testament, like other sins, unless it is repented of and placed under the forgiving power and shed blood of Jesus Christ, it can keep a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that, uh, listen, people choose to worship idols, right? They choose it. They choose to commit murder right? They choose it. They choose to commit fornication and adultery, and they choose to get drunk and be greedy and become abusive, and they decide to practice homosexual acts willfully. We're all born with an incurable propensity to indulge our passions, aren't we? That's sin. And we were born with an incredible potential to become any one of the things listed in this text that I just read. Any one of us could become any of those things because of our propensity to sin and indulge our passions. Because we were all born sinners, and that's what sin does. Let me say this. We're all born sinners because that's what sin does. But Jesus said we all need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. You cannot escape the undeniable truth that God does not condone this sin or any sin for that matter. You either have to redefine the act or reinvent the God. Those are your two choices, and that's exactly what's happened in our society today. We've done both. I've heard talks and sermons and read books and articles and commentaries in which all kinds of theological gymnastics were employed to prove that Jesus actually approved of these practices, but not once have I heard someone deal effectively and convincingly with these passages of Scripture. Not once, and especially the one that's on the screen behind me. Let me ask you, does God condone murder? Does he wink at adultery? Does he like the fact that people are idolaters or greedy or abusive or cheating their neighbors? Does God approve of any of those things? Then why then, tell me please, would he turn a blind eye to the only sin that people single out of this passage and say it's okay? The only one. I've read that throughout the course of history, one of the characteristics of a declining society is an increase in the practice and tolerance of homosexual activity. It indicates emphatically that the foundation of society, which is the family, 
has broken down and been destroyed. You know what Paul's writing to here? Right? He's writing to this text. He's writing to the Corinthians. You know what the Corinthian culture was like, right? Completely decadent, immoral. And, and then back in Romans, who's he writing to? Right? The Romans. Let me give you a few, just this little tidbit of information. 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Nero, who was in power when Paul was writing, was himself a homosexual, and he had a boy who was his slave, had him castrated so that he could be the wife of the emperor. This was a very prevalent thing that was going on here when Paul wrote. That's what he's writing about. But it also applies to today, doesn't it? Because it's the same exact thing that's going on today. Now, I've seen many professing Christians struggle to maintain an open mind on this issue. But be very careful. Be very careful. As one man wisely said, sometimes an open mind is one that is too porous to hold a conviction. We must base our convictions on what God has said, not on what the world does. Someone once pointed out that a lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by the majority. According to God's revealed truth, homosexuality is sin, and secondly, as sin, it, is, it invites God's judgment in verse 27. It talks about the fact that people receive their own, in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Lord Byron, a brilliant poet who spent his life in a mad search for pleasure trying to live it up, wrote in despair, quote, the thorns I have reaped are of the tree I have planted. They have torn me and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a tree, unquote. Paul says that as men burned in their desire toward one another, they received in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is the sow, and, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind effect, right? That you find in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. Notice the penalty for this sin is received within themselves. And the problem is, is that it doesn't stop there because sadly, it's not just the perpetrators who suffer the consequences of sin. The sin of one touches the lives of all, whether you're talking about homosexuality or any sin, right? The astounding transmission of AIDS as well as an abundance of other sexually transmitted diseases are just the tip of the iceberg of the pain that's been caused by this sin. Who can ignore the distinct loss of personal identity, the inward emotional and moral confusion, the broken relationships and fear of rejection that plunges many practicing homosexuals into the depths of despair and oftentimes suicide? And somebody might be sitting there, it's because of preaching like you're preaching right now that does that. Well, I don't think so. I'm not done yet. The tragic truth of this situation is that it's avoidable. 
Yes, homosexuality is sin, one of the many that plagues our world, and as such, it warrants God's judgment. But thirdly, as sin, homosexuality is forgivable. The sin is not the unpardonable sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, verses 9 through 11 this time. I'll reread 9 and 10, and then I'll bring up 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, say it, were. That's what some of you were, he's writing to the Corinthians. That's what you used to be like. That's what you used to do. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? Amen? But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it's okay if you just take that one sin out of this category list and continue to practice that. We'll condone it. It's okay. No, he says that's what some of you were. In other words, you're not that way anymore. You don't do those things anymore any more than I'm going to go out and get drunk tomorrow. Well, by the way, notice the other things here. We're all falling into a category, aren't we? Notice them. How about the greedy or the drunkards or the slanderers? You ever march on the Capitol steps? The church doesn't march on the Capitol. I heard this this week. That's why I'm sharing it. Church doesn't go to Washington and march against gossips, does it? Do we? Do we have rallies against slanderers and drunkards and greedy people? No, we don't do that. We do this on the homosexual thing, though. Why? Because it's being perpetrated as okay. See, it's not the specific sin of homosexuality that keeps people out of heaven. Ultimately, it's the sin of not receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord that keeps people out of heaven. Amen. Homosexuality, like any other sin, can be forgiven and overcome in Christ, but first, it must be acknowledged as sin and repented of. And that's the thing that's not happening. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says it very clearly. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This is where it's at. And his word is not in us. Professing Christ follower who is a practicing homosexual is a contradiction in terms according to the scripture. According to this scripture, such were some of you. Any attempt to justify this sin from a biblical standpoint is both futile and blatantly heretical. To do that would be to completely deny what God has said and what he has done throughout history. One would have to abandon God in order to do it. You get what I'm getting at? Because that's what Paul's getting at. That is exactly the point Paul makes. God gives people over for one reason and one reason only, because people abandon him with full knowledge of doing so. 
Spiritual defiance ultimately results in total decadence. The spiral begins with the impurity of physical degradation, which leads then to the perversity of sexual deviation and finally results in the inevitability of intellectual disintegration. That's a big one. It's important that you understand the bottom of the spiral. The inevitability of intellectual disintegration, and that's exactly what's happening. While so-called progressives and self-proclaimed academics tout their intellectual prowess, society continues to further crumble and erode. Professing to be wise, they become fools. I can't help but think of that Think designation that I just read to you, the LGBTQQIP2SAA. I mean, come on. Uh, there have been times over the years that I have listened to people in counseling situations and I wondered if there were any normal people left in the world. And I counseled church people. And do you know what I've found when I've tried to give people like that that are really adamant about what they want? God's word, they don't want it. They don't want it. They have the attitude described in Job chapter 21, verse 14, which says, quote, they say to God, depart from us, we do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways, unquote. That's a dangerous place to be. That's what sets this whole thing in motion, says Paul. And when people persist in thinking that God is not worth acknowledging, he gives them over to a mind that can no longer discern what is right and wrong. Right? That's what it says in verse 28. And just as they did not fit to see, to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Well, just look at all of those things, right? And when people persist in thinking that God is not worth acknowledging, that mind becomes undiscerning of anything that is evil, right and wrong. It's all jumbled up, messed up, and eventually leads them to commit and promote every kind of sin imaginable. Watch the downward spiral here, okay? Intellectual disintegration begins with a distorted awareness. Verse 28 says, to do those things which aren't proper. A mind that rejects God becomes rejected by God and unable to discern those things. It's depraved, which leads them, secondly, into decadent actions. Again, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. How does that sin work its way in there with all those other bad stuff, bad sins? It just keeps coming up, right? God must hate that. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Wow, that's a list. You go home and read that list and tear it apart one by one. It's pretty dark. A uh, few things stand out here. Haters of God, right? You ever spoken to a hater of God? It's not, they're scary to be around. Scary people. Inventors of evil? I'll just chalk up book and screenwriters on that list, right? How much evil can one come up with to put a script together for a new movie? 
unloving, without natural affection, they're heartless, and then unmerciful. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is a downward slide, and it begins with distorted awareness, declines into decadent actions, which eventually leads to deprogrammed attitudes. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. This place is reached when a society not only condones evil and commits evil, but it celebrates evil. And when we get to that place, we've reached the depths of decadence. I challenge you to read this list and name one thing on it that's not been either defended, applauded, or promoted on your TV or on social media feed. You can't do it. It's all there. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So what do we do? Let me wrap it up. After reading a passage like this, it's easy to become depressed. Trust me, I was wrestling all week. But Paul's whole point in laying it out for us is that we recognize that everyone needs the good news of Christ. That's the whole point of Romans 1, is to bring that out. We were all condemned because we've all turned away from God. But the good news is that as long as we are alive, there is an opportunity to be forgiven. We could turn to God. Paul knows about forgiveness, doesn't he? He also knows that there's no forgiveness without Christ. What then are we to do as believers in the grace and mercy of Christ? Number one, be available. Be available. Don't think that this is all going to go away in our world. It won't. If you remain passive, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Are you willing to be used by God to change your world? Number two, be responsible. Recognize that sin is going on in your community, in your office, in your home, and in your heart. Deal with it. Confess it. Repent of it. Keep close to God. Invest yourself in prayer, personal holiness, and practical opportunities to share Christ with your neighbor. Number three, be approachable. Yes, as Christians, we are supposed to hate sin. No question about it, but not those who sin, okay? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Granted, there are many militant people out there who aggressively push their agenda to embrace their sin, but remember what you pushed before you came to Christ. Anything on this list? You may be asking, is it even possible to hate the sin and love the sinner? It seems so strange to say that. Read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. In that book, C.S. Lewis writes, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate the sin but love the sinner. I used to think this is a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I'd been doing this to all my life, namely myself. 
However much I dislike my own cowardice, he says, or conceit or greed, I went right on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man, right? You hated the sin because you loved the man. That's what people need to see. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those kinds of things. You know, I, I, I often thought, what? Maybe that's what the scriptures mean in the second greatest commandment when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we, we, have, we are duty bound to be compassionate toward our neighbors no matter who they are, right? No matter who they are. Think of the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus told. Or the woman caught in adultery. Jesus didn't condemn her. But neither did he sidestep the truth about the actions. He charged her to go and sin no more. And he clearly pointed out the hypocrisy of those who cold-heartedly wanted to stone her. I'll tell you, this LGBTQ and whatever else community, they need to see the love of Christ as much as anyone else in this world needs to see it. Amen? No, we cannot compromise, but neither should we condescend. The bottom line is to be biblical. Be biblical, okay? And I'll release you with that. Be biblical. Love God, love people, honor the truth, because it sets people free. Remember, all people matter to God. He loves them and he hates the sin. All of our sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus lives. So go and give him Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is such a hard text, but such a lesson that you have modeled for us in your life. That you love people so much that you laid down your life on the cross so that no one would have to perish but that everyone who believes in you would be able to have eternal life. And so let us go forth with that good news and remind people of the love that God has for them, no matter what, no matter what they've done. We love you, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your grace and mercy. May it wash over us today. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.